My name is Lawson Harlow. I was the last church plant resident, residence, resident, sorry, words are hard, um, resident here. Um, and so we launched actually a year ago this Sunday. Um, and so we, we are having our one-year anniversary this Sunday. It has been um, a thrill ride, a very fast and simultaneously somehow very slow year. But man, it's been so fruitful. And so from um, a church plant, a former church plant resident, um, thank you. Um, apart from your giving, apart from your prayers, apart from your support, I can think of and I can see people in this room right now who have called and asked for help and support and frankly just guidance. Um, and you are always quick to meet the need. Um, and so I'm just so grateful for this church. Uh, this, this church is um, made up of people who love the Lord, love the gospel, and love to ex see the kingdom expanded. Um, and that, that's what makes church planting possible, um, is, is, is churches that say, we're going to do this. We're going to actually be people who go out, plant churches, that we might see a harvest come in from good gospel ministry. And so with that, um, thank you for, for letting me come and fill in uh, this evening. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Psalm 105. It's funny, when I, when I got here, my first psalm that I preached was Psalm uh, 34. Um, and I can't believe somehow it, we're in the hundreds. Um, and you have a whole year or more left of this, actually. And so, anyway, I love, I love, uh, I love the psalms. They're, they're such a joy to preach because they, they really do allow us to look into how doctrine and truth is applied to the believer's life, especially in regard to the emotions. Um, one of the ways that or one of the things I think is often void, either, either completely void or overemphasized, is the emotions role uh, in, in, in faith. What does it mean to have our emotions stirred, our affections stirred for Christ? And I think the Psalms does a great job of, uh, of capturing that. And so this morning, this evening, not morning, sorry, uh, this, this evening, uh, what I'd like to do is walk through this Psalm, and then the last thing we'll do is go back and ask how we respond to it. Um, and so if you have your Bible, Psalm 105, we're going to read through this Psalm. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you it's a lengthy one, but uh, I think it's always profitable to hear the reading of God's Word. So Psalm 105, starting in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearers of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The works of the... Excuse me, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one king to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of him, set of, ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. 
until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The rulers of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all possessions to, to, to blind his excuse me, to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than, than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood. He caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hell for rain and firing lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number which devoured all the vegetation in the land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in the land, the first fruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold. And there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promises, and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the land of the nations. And they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his law. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we're grateful Lord, even in just the reading of this psalm, we see your redemptive purpose. Lord, we see how you cared for those who are yours. And Father, as we examine this text this evening, I pray that you would allow us to see Christ here. Lord, that you would allow us to look in and see what you have revealed through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and through the psalmist. And Father, I, I pray that as we approach this text, that you would give us uh, a means by which to draw near to you. Lord, we believe that what we have before us is the infallible Word of God. And Father, we pray the promises that you have given over it, Lord, that it has a purpose when it goes out, and Lord, that you will always accomplish that purpose. And so, Father, for the saint, I pray that you would sanctify them in truth, and Lord, if there be any here who do not know you, I pray that by your grace you will draw them to yourself. It is in the name of Christ, and through his blood we pray. Amen. Um, so if you have your Bible, Psalm 105 is where we're going to begin, and we're going to break this down into two primary, uh, two primary thoughts. So the first one is we're going to examine the promises of God. So um, I, for those of you who were here when I was here, you'll know that I don't do notes really well. And so with that being said, uh, if there's something afterwards you have a question about or something like that, by all means, feel free to come and ask me about it. But the way that I'd like to start this, because for us to really grasp and see where the psalmist is going here, we really need to understand the background that he's meditating on. Um, every psalm, to some degree, has some type of thinking behind it. And so really what I want to examine is what we find starting in verse 7, going all the way um, down to verse 10. And this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at how God has, what God has promised to his people and ultimately trace that promise throughout the patriarchs. And then we're going to examine how that relates to us and, and certainly how we see God providentially bring those things about. And so starting in verse 7, he says this, he is the Lord our God. 
His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenants forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. So if you notice verse 9, you really see almost a a trajectory taking place. So in verse 9 it says, The covenant that you made with Abraham sworn promise to Isaac, confirmed in Jacob as a statute, and lastly to Israel as an everlasting covenant. And so what I'd like to do this evening is simply walk through those covenants so that we can understand where the psalmist is coming from as he writes. And secondly, what I want to do is examine how God brought about those covenant promises. We look at the promises of God and we, all, we, we naturally assume that they're going to come about because we believe in a sovereign God. We believe that he knows the end from the beginning and certainly he has decreed the means to reach his end. But I think it's important for us to stop and examine those things. We almost, we assume them without ever really developing and looking into them. And so the first thing that I want to do is examine the covenant that God made with Abraham. Most of you are going to be incredibly familiar with this passage. This is Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, we see this grand moment, I mean, an incredibly, just a stunning moment of God covenanting with himself for Abraham's good. So if you look at Genesis chapter 15, I'm going to kind of overview it here, but certainly mark that and maybe go back and read it later. In Genesis chapter 15, you see God began to covenant with Abraham to give him an offspring that that outnumbered the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. What's so interesting about this is covenants are traditionally made between two people, which is natural. Certainly we can see that in the marriage relationship, right? When we look at the covenant, it would be foolish for someone to covenant to love and to obey themselves throughout their entire lives, though many of us seemingly do that. But when you see this played out, instead of Abraham walking through making this covenant with God, instead you see God essentially make the covenant with himself. Now, the reason this is so incredibly important is because God's faithfulness to his covenant is not dependent on our faithfulness to him. Instead, it is completely and totally dependent, dependent on his faithfulness to himself. Now, the reason this is so important is because God promised that he would bring about a certain end. And certainly you see him make if-them statements with Abraham saying, if you do this, then this will occur. But this promise doesn't have that. This promise is a direct promise, a covenant from God that Abraham's offspring will indeed outnumber the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashores. What's so interesting about this is when you consider that, what kind of being can promise that to a man who is in his 90s and has not a single offspring? Not one. There's nothing here. Like Isaac isn't born yet. Ishmael isn't born yet. There's absolutely no evidence that this could possibly come about. And yet here we see God promised this in such a way, and not only promise it to him, but covenant with himself to bring this about. Now, for the sake of illustration, in the covenants that were made, there would be animals that were split in two, essentially broken down into a line very much like the aisle before me. And when someone would walk through that, they were saying, should I break this covenant, then what what has been done to these animals can then be done to me. That's the type of covenant we see made. 
And God, instead of asking Abraham to walk through it, simply does it himself because he knows Abraham cannot be completely and perfectly faithful the way that God can be faithful to himself. And so you see this promise given to Abraham, and this is the essential start of the nation of Israel. From this moment forward, Abraham has been chosen for this. We'll develop that a little bit more fully in a moment. But when you see this, you look at Abraham being dealt with not based on any merit in him, but instead based on God's free grace. Abraham is chosen simply because God chooses Abraham. There's nothing in him that draws attention to Abraham by any means. Instead, you see God simply in his grace say, Abraham, I'm going to choose you and birth a great nation from you. Now, the reason this is so comforting for us is because God deals with us in the exact same way. It's not based on foreseen merit that we find ourselves in relationship with the God of the universe. Friends, if it was based on foreseen merit, our merit is very clear. We don't have any. On the contrary, we actually have things that would repel him from us. And instead, you see God deal with Abraham in just this free grace of offering everything to Abraham based on God's love for Abraham that was not caused by Abraham's faithfulness or obedience, but simply caused because God demanded that it occur. And so you see uh, this covenant begin, and then you see progression take place here. So you see Abraham's develop, and then later on, the, the covenant passes on to Isaac. And so in the text that you find here in verse 9, it says the covenant that he made with Abraham, and then it goes on, progresses his sworn promise to Isaac. What is the sworn promise to Isaac? You see this in Genesis chapter 26. The sworn promise is essentially the same promise that God gave to Abraham. The covenant that he made with Abraham passes on to Isaac. And Isaac is encouraged to walk faithfully before God. We see Isaac certainly sin and do things of that nature, but the covenant once again stands based not on the foreseen merit nor the merit presently in Isaac, but instead goes back to that original covenant God made with himself. And so the psalmist is here meditating on the fact that Abraham, the, the covenant that God made with Abraham, he is, in the moment that he is pinning this, still a recipient of. And he looks at how it progresses on to Isaac, as Isaac is then the, um, the, the, the object of the covenant of God with Israel. And then we see this, it progresses on to Jacob. Now, Jacob is perhaps one of the most interesting characters in the book of Genesis. He's one of my favorite characters, essentially, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament because I, I sympathize with Jacob. Jacob's name when he was born was cheater or liar. Um, and, 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 and perhaps I'm the only one standing here today that, that would say that before I came to know Christ, I was a completely different individual. And so what you find in Jacob is this cheater, this one who does not deserve in any way the covenant promises of God. On the contrary, everything is against him. He's not the firstborn. He's certainly not morally upright. He essentially is a pagan and practices his life as a pagan up until the point he leaves his father-in-law and begins to make his way back to the promised land. So why is it that we see this progression go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob? Well, we see this once again based on God's freedom. He has a covenant that he has made and he has chosen Jacob to be the means by which he brings all of these covenant promises about. And so from Jacob following on, we find Israel or, um, I'm sorry, Jacob is Israel, forgive me. And this is where we take this next step. 
So we look at the covenant promises that we find in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then they begin to make their way into the entire nation of Israel. And we see that first and foremost when, Jake, when God changes Jacob's name to Israel. The reason that we call them the 12 tribes of Israel is because God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Strives with God. And so you see Jacob go from being the cheater, the liar, to all of a sudden being the one who is called, he strives with God. There's a fundamental and dramatic change that takes place in Jacob's life to the same degree that we see a name change. And I know that you're all familiar with another character that we have in the New Testament, Paul being changed from Saul to Paul. There was a dynamic shift in his life based upon what God has done. And then we progress to Israel. And Israel, perhaps, is where we see the covenant begin to break apart, not, not to, to disintegrate, begin to spread to different areas. So we see this most clearly in Exodus chapter 19, really all the way to the end of the book of Exodus and far past that into the entirety of the Old Testament. When we look at the book of Exodus, it starts in verse 19, and all of us would be familiar with Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. We have a moral law instituted because God has done a great work for Israel. God has done a great work for Israel. He has delivered them from slavery, from bondage, and not just delivered them from slavery and bondage, but done so in such an incredibly miraculous way that the entire nation of Egypt is just absolutely awestruck by the power of the God of Israel. And at this point, they're doing everything they can to get rid of Israel because they're seeing the destruction that the Lord is causing throughout Egypt. And so in chapter 20, we see a moral law instituted. And then throughout the remainder of the Old Testament, we see that covenant develop, made more full. And these promises are meant to be meditated upon. But it should lead us to understand and see how God has providentially brought them about and ultimately where we find their fulfillment. And so if you would, what I'd like to do is if you look at this psalm, it can be broken up into multiple parts, but really verses 12 all the way through 43, we see how God providentially kept and preserved the covenant that he made with Abraham, and he does so in two fashions. First of all, he preserves the line of Christ, which we'll develop in a moment, and secondly, he forecasts the life of Christ. Friends, the entire scriptures from start to end have one major theme, Christ and him crucified. There's this poor hermeneutic where we come to Scripture, and if we find ourselves in the Old Testament, we presume that it can't be about Christ because Christ has not been incarnated at this point. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, if you've been reading your Old Testament, apart from looking into the person and work of Christ, you've been reading your Old Testament as a Pharisee and not as a Christian. When we look at the Old Testament scriptures, they scream Christ. They make him clear, loud and clear. And so what I'd like to do is show you that in this passage and obviously in the illumination of the New Testament. So verses 12 through 15, he protected and preserved Israel in their infancy. Notice verses 12 through 15. When they were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed one, do my prophet no harm. 
Now, when we look at the lineage that we made reference to of the covenants from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and then into the nation of Israel, or at this particular point, I'd say into Judah, the major thing we're looking at here is the lineage of our Lord. We see certainly that he is in the lineage of Abraham, leading into Isaac, leading into Jacob, leading into Judah. What you see is God divinely preserving the offspring that was promised not in Genesis, but in I mean, not in, not in the covenant between God and Abraham, but instead in the curse. There's a clear statement in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there will be an offspring, one who will crush the head of the enemy. And from this point forward, you begin to watch as God in the Old Testament traces the line of our Lord to preserve and keep that perfect line that he would bring the Lord Jesus through. And so what you see here is God providentially keeping them and preserving them while Israel was in infancy. Now, the major way that we see that is through the person of Joseph. And so if you notice verses 16 through 22, the major point that we have here is he raised up Joseph to deliver from God's wrath. Notice verse 16. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them. Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The rulers of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. So the reason we look at this is because we need to see and understand how God preserved that line. And Joseph is perhaps one of the most beloved stories throughout the entire book of of Genesis. There are movies for days. There's plays. People love the story of Joseph. People love the story of Joseph is because for some degree, it's almost this idea of one who is highly exalted and highly esteemed. I mean, consider the prophecy that the Lord gives him that his brothers, not only his brothers, but his mother and father would one day all bow before him. Now, there's some conjecture here. Some people believe that it was sinful for Joseph to bring this to his brothers. I do not. I think he was being a faithful prophet. He was forecasting and telling the vision that God had given him. And so you see him do this. And as he does this, you watch as Joseph is then taken, cast to the lowest possible position, literally in the bottom of a well. And then you see him sold into slavery. One who was just moments ago seen to be the most exalted of the sons of Israel is now a slave. And so you see God set this whole thing into motion for the sole purpose of bringing about food in the midst of a famine. We look at the story of Joseph. Have you ever considered the randomness of the story of Joseph? It's the whole back half of the book of Genesis. The entire book of Genesis traces the line of our Lord, but then Joseph is not in that lineage. But then in the midst of the story of Joseph, there's this brief break in, verse, in chapter 38. In chapter 38, we see uh, an examination of Judah. Why do we see an examination of Judah in this passage? Because the whole purpose of Joseph being sold into slavery, then being placed in Potiphar's house, house, even being accused of assaulting a woman that is not his wife, or assaulting one, period, being placed in prison, I mean, you can't get any lower than this, then being forgotten about when he prophesies in a way that, that, that brings another man to a place of exaltation again. And then you see him go and foretell, examine, or interpret the dream of the king of Egypt, then placed at the second highest position. And not even really the second highest position, but sharing that perfect 
highest position. There was no one under his, uh, above his authority. And in this you see God doing one thing and one thing only, preserving the line of Judah. The purpose of the story of Joseph is to show you how God preserved Judah because through Judah, our Lord will come. The reason that all of this took place in the life of Joseph was so that we can look back and celebrate and see how God providentially, not only providentially preserved the line of Judah, but simultaneously inspired the Holy Scriptures that we could see him preserve the line of Judah. Friends, if you ever question the integrity of the New or Old Testament, Simply examine it. Examine how incredibly thorough they are in, 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 in every situation that they deal with. But even past that, why in the world would Moses, as he pens Genesis, think to himself, I need to write about Judah and his lineage here? There's only one reason. The Holy Spirit inspired him to do so that we can look back and trace our Lord's lineage. The faithfulness of the Holy Spirit in communicating truth to us simply knows no bounds. We see him raised up to deliver from God's wrath. Now, I would like to make clear here, if you look at verse 16, when he summoned a famine on the land, the reason that this took place was because God was executing his wrath on a nation. You see him cause this particular famine so that all of this would occur. And so you see Joseph raised, why would we have this grand account? It not only traces our Lord's lineage, but it also, as we'll examine in a moment, shows us how he himself would deliver us from the wrath of God. Secondly, we see him raise up, a, raise up Joseph to deliver from God's wrath. Thirdly, he raised up a prophet who spoke from God and performed signs. So verses 23 through 36. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Now, I do want to take a pause here. This isn't in your notes. This is simply an aside. It is important to note that you see Israel grow and thrive most in the midst of really horrible circumstances. We as a church and we as a people do everything possible we can to avoid difficulty, strife, and struggles. I'm just here to tell you that the Lord uses those to do incredible things in the life of his saints and in the life of his church. We see that perfectly um, throughout the entire revelation of Scripture. If you look at it, what happened in Israel amidst this time? Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with them with his servants. You see amidst this, they're they're in the land, they're growing in power, they're growing in might, and then for an extended period of time, they're slaves, and still they are multiplying and growing. It's just an incredible thing to consider and to examine for just a moment. So we see him raise up a prophet who spoke from God and performed signs. Continuing on in verse 26, we see him send Moses. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hell for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, 
which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all their firstborn in the land, the firstborn of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. So you see the Lord raise up a prophet, an abnormal prophet. When we consider Moses' background, he was raised essentially as a prince of Egypt. He was raised in a high, high family. And then all of a sudden we see this great rage break out in him when he's seeing his people persecuted and harmed. And he strikes an Egyptian dead. He is then essentially self-exiled into the wilderness. And, and, and you kind of see him develop from there. But the major thing I want to examine here is how faithful God was to send a prophet. And this particular prophet is what, what we call the prophet. When you examine the Old Testament and someone says the prophet, nine times out of ten they're speaking of Moses. Now we'll examine how Christ fulfills this in a moment, but when you consider Moses and what he did and who uh, and the things that he taught, you see him raised up to speak from God. I just want to pause here and consider the grace of this. Apart from God sending someone to speak from him, apart from God desiring to reveal himself, friends, we would have no knowledge of him. And so what you see here is God sending a prophet to go and to communicate his grace, his love, and ultimately his deliverance. And as he does this, he not only comes to perform, to, I mean, to, to speak from God, but also to perform signs and wonders. That by the time all of this is said and done, everyone is beginning to think about the God of Moses and ultimately the God of Israel. You also see in verses 39 through 42 that he perfectly provided for them in the wilderness. This is a fantastic story of how God provides in every major facet. So in, in verse 39, it says, He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. So three things, three major things you see God provide in the wilderness. The first one is light. You see him come as a pillar of cloud and fire, and in that he is, is a means by which the Israelites see. Secondly, you see him provide bread. You see him provide food and nourishment for them as they are wandering through the wilderness. And lastly, you see him provide water. And in this, you can imagine as Israel is seeing these things laid out, they're seeing the perfect provision of God. So far what we've seen is we see God as protector in Israel. He is the one who protects and preserves and makes sure that they will grow and that they will mature. Secondly, we see him as one who will raise up one to deliver. Thirdly, we see him as one who will reveal himself through a prophet and one who works signs and miracles. And then we see him as provider, one who has absolutely and perfectly provided for every need of his chosen people. Let me get to the last one. In verse 43 through 45, we see that he fulfills his promise by bringing them into the promised land. Notice the text. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his law, laws. Praise the Lord. Now, I know that that was a history lesson. But to the psalmist, it wasn't. To the psalmist, that was not a history lesson. To the psalmist, that was him examining God's faithful provision throughout not only his life, certainly. He is still benefiting from every covenant that God made with his 
forefathers. When he pins this, he's meditating on God's perfect provision. And I would even argue to some degree that he is meditating on God's future provision. When we examine this text, there's one major thing we see here. The the primary thing we see is certainly how God has preserved the line of Christ. But secondly, what is most interesting is we see God revealing and foretelling essentially the work of Christ and exactly how his life would unfold. The first thing that we see is God preserving and protecting his chosen one. Friends, our Lord's first years, he was fleeing for his life or his parents were going to multiple countries to make sure that in his infancy that he was safe and secure from harm. And then not only do we see that little bitty glimpse, but we see this idea of one like Joseph. As a matter of fact, during the days of the New Testament, the common phrase was that the the Messiah will be like Joseph. And that was a a common thing the Pharisees would say. He would be a, a son of Joseph. He would bear his image. He would essentially be that idea of a suffering servant that we see in the book of Isaiah. All throughout, in the center portion of Isaiah, we see this development of this this, this Messiah figure who will come, and he will suffer as a servant who will ultimately then deliver his people from something. I think the text is pretty clear there. It's making reference to being delivered from sin and its consequence. The same way that we see Joseph raised up for the purpose of deliverance of God's people, we see the Lord Jesus raised up for the deliverance of his people. He is indeed the great deliverer. He is like Joseph. He is the better prophet. Right now at Mercy Hill, we're preaching through the book of John. The major portions of what we've gone through thus far, we just hit chapter 8. When we look at this, there's this common theme throughout that the Pharisees are constantly looking for better than Moses. That's the major friction and frustration that they had. They couldn't fathom one that would come that would actually exceed Moses' teaching. And then when they thought of one that perhaps would exceed, they thought that he would come and, and bring about stricter laws, rules, and regulations. But instead what you find is one who comes to speak for God and ultimately tell them it's not about your work. It's not about your labor. It's about trusting in my finished work. And what you see here is this development. And not only do you see him come and speak from God, but simultaneously you see him certainly perform signs, miracles, and wonders that all that would look to him would see very clearly. There is something about this man. No one could deny it. The Pharisees could not deny his power. Sees very, very clear in John chapter 7. It makes this very clear. Would the Messiah do more signs than this man? And the answer is a resounding no. Christ is not the prophet. He is the better prophet. He is the perfect prophet. And not only do we see that, we see ultimately this fulfillment of Moses' work is found in the finished work of Christ. He delivered them from bondage and blessed them. Friends, the saint of God gets to look at this passage and see as, as throughout the entirety of Scripture, we see this correlation between the Exodus account and the true and better Exodus of God's people, not from bondage to Egypt, but from bondage to desires us to spend eternity separated from Christ. And what we find is Christ being the perfect fulfillment of that, that we can be free actually free, and not only free to the extent that you are just not enslaved anymore, but, but blessed. And when I say blessed, it's important for us to, to, to clarify this. It doesn't mean that we have earthly riches. Instead, it is the biblical understanding of blessed. The true understanding of blessed is that we are united with the Father. We are united in Christ. 
And so what you see in this deliverance is being delivered out of slavery to sin and to bondage and then being freed, but simultaneously being a slave to righteousness, being that doulos that we find Paul boasting in at the beginning of most of his letters. I confess that as I'm walking through the book of John, really verse chapters 6 and 7, major on this. What were the three things that I mentioned that we see God provide in the wilderness? Light, bread, and water. In John chapter 6 and 7, we see our Lord make reference to the fact that he is all of these things. I am the bread of life, John chapter 6. Not only does he say, I am the bread of life, he makes a direct parallel to the manna that was provided in the wilderness. And he says, the manna that you ate in the wilderness, you eat it, you'll die. If you eat the true and better bread, not based upon your labor, but based upon my free gift, then you will have eternal life. And not only that, but a little bit later, we see him, come to me, all you who are thirsty, and I will give you water. This rock that we see in the wilderness that is struck is none other than our Lord on the cross. That striking of that rock that spewed forth water is a shadow and a type. It is a shadow of a true and better substance. That true and better substance is our Lord, who each and every individual who comes to him will drink their fill. But the last one is light. That's what we find in John chapter 8. We see God's provision in each of these things. Can you imagine, should we, by God's grace, have true and better light? That what we see, we see not with earthly eyes, but we see through his illumination. I love what C.S. Lewis said in regard to Christ being the light or God being the light. Is he says, I believe, in, I believe in the light. I believe in Christ like I believe in the sun. Not because I see it, but because by it I see all other things. The way we see, the way that we have the ability, the illumination to see and to understand is by the light of Christ. The reason that they knew where they were going in the wilderness in the dark was because God was illuminating their way. In the exact same way, we see Christ being that perfect fulfillment. God is the true and better provision. And then we see this glorious truth in verse 43 and 45. So he brought his people out with joy his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the land of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. What is perhaps the most glorious truth is what God has promised in his covenants to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, all the way through the nation of Israel, finds their end result in actually receiving that covenant promise. Friends, there is not a single promise, nor is there a single word from which God uttered that did not come to fruition. Not one. There is no failing in him. There is no one who has the ability to thwart his plans. And friends, if there was, all it would do is make clear that he is actually not God. When God speaks, he does. His speaking is his doing. And when we examine him, promise these things, these things to, to, to Abraham, we should assume them to come to fruition. Now, perhaps let me correlate this or apply it to our lives today. Friends, the promises that are made in Christ, we don't, we, we don't, we don't rest in them in the sense that, oh, yes, they perhaps will come to be. We rest in them knowing they are. We rest in them knowing that they are true. We rest in them because we've tasted that water and we know that it will indeed perfectly satisfy 
We rest in them because the light that he provides is actually the way by which we see everything else. And we know that he will never withdraw that light. For Christ and God the Father, God the Spirit are immutable. They are unchangeable. And so we see this laid out before us. And we see this this great psalm examining God's covenants and then ultimately how God brings them to fruition. And so if you would for a minute, what I would like to do is simply remind you of the covenant that God has made with his people, namely his church. Friends, those who are brought into the kingdom of God by Christ's finished work will, by Christ's finished work, be sanctified, be conformed to his image. And if they are conformed to his image, they will be glorified. They build upon one another. They assume the perfect work of the, of the, of the primary. Justification actually does occur. If justification actually does occur, if you are forgiven of your sin, trespass, and iniquity, and if you have been cloaked in the perfect righteousness of Christ, then my friends, you get to rest secure knowing that throughout the entirety of your life, God will bring about conformity to his image in your life. And if you see sanctification occurring in your life, then you can rest very sure that you are justified, that God has applied those promises to you. And if you have been, if you have been justified, then you get to rest very sure knowing that you can echo with the psalmist here, that he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. He gave them the lands of nation. They took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. That's the end result. That's where we find ourselves. There is not a single ounce of the Christian life that should not be ever constantly meditating on the promises of God and resting in their truth. That's what the psalmist is demonstrating for us here. He is showing us what it looks like to meditate on, to love, cherish, and ultimately exhale praise based upon what God has promised. So that leads us to the last question that we'll answer. How then do we respond? When we examine the promises of God, when we see his finished work, when we see his faithfulness, when we taste it in the midst, the deepest possible pain or perhaps the greatest prosperity, how do we respond? Well, the psalmist answers this for us by way of introduction. And I would like to cover each of these. There's a couple here. The first one we see is remember his promises. Now, I'm going to read through verses, five, through verses 1 through 5 real quickly just to kind of give the background here. So Psalm 105, verse 1, O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him, sing praise to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servants, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. So in order of... Um, of I guess in the order that I like to think about this, is the first thing that we do is we remember his promises. We remember his promises. Friends, um, uh, there's a great book called Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges in which he encourages the saint to preach the gospel to himself. And I would encourage you that should you find yourself in a difficult situation, perhaps your tongue is slow to sing the praises of Christ, perhaps it would be wise for you to preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of God's covenant promises. Remind, remind yourself that that for which Christ died, he will bring into his kingdom. And should we do that, then we will find ourselves probably pretty quickly remembering his work. How is it that God and his promises brought about, brought about the means that would bring about the end? 
When we look at God's work, I mean, consider the gospel is ultimately God sending his son to die on the cross for our sin, to bear our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that each and every individual who places faith in him will indeed be saved. Well, let's examine what that looks like. Let's spread that out a little bit. What does that mean for Christ? It means that he would become incarnate. Perhaps one of the most neglected things that the church today examines, at least in America, is the incarnation of Christ. Have you ever considered the grand condescension that he had to undergo that way he could redeem you? Or perhaps even to meditate on the cross of Christ itself. The church loves to meditate on his physical anguish. We consider the nails. We consider the crown of thorns. We consider the lashings. Rarely do we consider the fact that he actually did, for those three hours of darkness, drink the cup of God's wrath. Rarely do we consider that. It should lead us to examine his works when we consider his promises. And in examining his works, I think there is only one result for those of us who actually are benefactors of his work, is to give thanks for his promises and works. When was the last time you paused in prayer to thank God, not just for the fact that he gave us a new day, for the ways that he's provided for you in the, in perhaps the more material sense in your life? When was the last time you paused and thanked the Lord for his coming, condescending, dwelling with man, for being born in a filthy manger that he might ransom you from hell? We're slow to do that. We're slow to examine the grand ways that God has actually brought about his promises and that will actually bring us into his kingdom. We must, if we examine his promises and his works, give thanks for those promises and works. The next, which I will not demonstrate now, is sing of his praises and works. I'm going to attack men for a minute. I love you dearly. Men are slow to sing. If you look at a congregation, I have the opportunity to do that pretty regularly. Men are normally the, the ones that will be standing there with mouths still or perhaps not singing as loudly as you could. Maybe because you have a terrible voice like me and you don't want to be embarrassed, but what have you. Brothers, if we think about his promises, if we meditate on his work, if we are thankful for them, we should drown out all other voices. And just as a side note, men, your wives need to, sing you, need to see you sing loudly the praises of Christ. They need to see you worship. So, side note, sorry, brief application. We should sing of his promises and works, and we should sing of them gladly. One of the great joys, and there is an incredible link. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, argued that the, 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 the second greatest discipline other than theology is music. God has given somehow this miraculous and very unique link between the soul and music. And it is a grand op opportunity every time we gather with the saints to sing loudly the praises of Christ together. There's no greater joy for me than on Sunday morning to sit on the front row and, and, and just for a moment quiet myself to hear the saints sing. It is a glorious sound. And friends, it is a sound that you should grow familiar with because you will hear it throughout the expanse of eternity. It is the thing in which we do here, which we will do all the more there. And so we must sing of his praises and work. We must make his promises and works known. There is not a single soul that loves something that does not share it. 
If we say we love the promises and works of Christ and they never come out of our mouth, whether that be to the saint or the sinner, we are liars. We are liars. One of the most tragic things that I see in the church today is that we might even be passionate about sharing the gospel with people as we should be, but I often find a neglect of celebrating Christ with brothers and sisters who have been ransomed by that same work. Friends, Christ's work should be on our tongues and on our lips. There should not be more conversation about SEC football than there is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that can apply across the board to any subject material. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what you love. Ultimately, what you love will come out of your mouth. And you should perhaps take it as an indication that should you speak more of earthly things than you do the work and promises of your God and King, that perhaps priorities need to be adjusted. What you see in this psalm is this exhale of praise, of meditation, ultimately bringing us to, to it today to examine and apply those same things. Lastly, it's glory in Him. Glory in Him. I love this. Uh, verse 3, glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Oh man, how we neglect this. What it actually means to simply rest in the presence of God. Friends, when we look and examine the works of God, when we look and examine His promises, we must not forget the giver of the gifts above examining the gifts itself. All of them flow from Him. All of them flow from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And we should find ourselves glorying in their persons. The greatness of the gospel is that you get to know the one true God. That's the glory of it. And the saint must find themselves longing. And I mean like genuine longing, like eight months Eight months of pregnancy, waiting for nine months, night before your wedding day, longing to rest and be in the midst of the glory of God. And perhaps an 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 applicable way to examine this is how much does your soul delight and and, and exult in the fact that tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and spend time in God's Word? Does it thrill your soul? Because, friends, if we believe that these promises are true, if we believe the works that were necessary to accomplish them, then how could our souls delight in anything more than them and the God who brought them about?